Here we have episode 198. This one's a little bit different. It's a roundtable discussion that I was a part of recently with Karen Martell and Marty Kendall on all of the latest diet trends covering both the good and the bad things about what is buzzing around in the world of health and nutrition right now. From when fasting becomes damaging to the keto diet making you gain weight, the challenges with eating more protein and why you need to do it, avoiding rebound weight gain after a diet is over, the weight loss and maintenance cycle that should occur along this journey, why you can't consistently lose weight forever, realistic weight loss timeframes, the role that dopamine plays in our attachment and connection to food, and well, just a whole load of other different facts, figures and insights that are really worth looking into when it comes to going on any body transformation journey. I absolutely love hanging out with both of these fantastic humans, so I'm sure you two will enjoy spending time listening to this conversation and hanging out with both of them as well. And a big thanks to Karen Martell and her show, The Other Side of Weight Loss, for putting this little mastermind, masterclass, roundtable thingy-ma-bob together. Enjoy all of the aha moments, and I would love to hear about your thoughts and experience of this episode, so feel free to reach out inside our groups or on social media and let me know. All right, time to dive in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. All right, ladies. I've been doing this podcast for a really long time, and I have interviewed well over a hundred different guests. Well, there's two gentlemen, two Australian gentlemen who have ridden the top of the charts now for many months. They have neck neck and neck. They keep going past up and down with each other. They're they've gotten fist fights over it. (laughs) But no, really they have had the most downloaded interviews out of all of my interviews over the last five years. With me today are my two friends from Australia on the other side of the world, Marty Kendall and Maddie Lansdowne. And today we are going to be doing a roundtable discussion, a very long roundtable discussion, two parts actually. And we're going to be answering some of your guys' questions that you sent in. We're going to be discussing all things weight loss and hormones and psychology of eating. We're going to be covering it all. So get excited because this is going to be good. So Marty Kendall is the author of the the book, Big Fat Keto Lies. He is an engineer who seeks to optimize nutrition using data-driven approach. His interest in nutrition began 18 years ago in an effort to help his wife, Monica, gain better control of her type 1 diabetes. But since then, he has worked to develop a systemized approach to nutrition tailored for a wide range of goals. Maddie Lansdowne is a scientist, nutritionist, and health coach that specializes in weight loss and self-confidence for women and busy mothers. Maddie's extensive experience with nutrition led him to uncover the deeper challenge people have with health, which isn't about calories or kale, but in fact, mindset and behavior change. Having been on his own personal development journey, Maddie is now super passionate about showing people how to level up their health so that healthy habits and the best food choices are easy and natural. So welcome, my friends. Uh, great to be hey. here again, Karen. Yeah, thanks for getting us on. I know. How exciting, right? Totally. <laughs> I had to I had to have you guys back because 
clearly the audience loves you. So why not have you back together? And we all come from a really different approach. Like what our niches are, are so different. And when you put them together, it's like, we are the dream team. Truly. We really are. We were just talking before we started recording that we need to like run a, a, a resort or what did we <laughs> a retreat we're gonna retreat. run a mexican Thank retreat you. a mexico oh, we're gonna throw mexico in there okay for, perfect yes we're gonna do a mexican retreat <laughs> we're doing it <laughs> i love it i love it and i know everybody else would too but yeah i just love that we all have such a different approach and we've actually discussed how many people now have taken all of our programs because they really do mold together so well. So awesome to have you guys here. So we're going to jump right into diet because we're in a world today where we're getting so much mixed messages over what we should be doing, how we should be losing weight, what's best for us. I get all the time how confused people are and they just don't, they just are like throwing up their hands going, I don't even know what to do anymore or how to eat because there's so much different information coming out there. So let's jump into the number one, probably most Google thing right now, which is fasting. I want to talk about fasting because today I was talking with somebody about how I had heard about, and I actually heard it on their, on a podcast. I heard this podcast. I'm not going to name names. Two very well-known people in the fasting world who are pushing that women should be fasting every other day, as well as for, you know, do an extended fast once a month. So what's your opinion on this? Let's go, Maddie. Let's hear what you got to say about it. Go, Maddie. What? Well, well, I think in my experience, and it's potentially the same for both of you, but a lot of women that have been cycling in and out of diets for so very long are already not eating enough food, or they've been on a lot of extremely low calorie diets as it is. Uh, and so the, the influence that that has on the metabolism over 10, 20, 30, 40 years of dieting, and many of the people that I work with have been on a diet for literally four or five decades. Um, and then you get to the idea of alternate day fasting, which is like, we're not just going to calorie restrict every second day. We're going to have no calories. Um, so it's sort of, yeah, you're just doubling down on the same problem that has been created for you, which is not getting enough energy into the system uh, to support the metabolism and everything you need. And, and you've obviously adapted to having not enough calories. And then, of course, when you're in a low calorie situation, I know Marty talks a lot about satiety as well, is that, yeah, you end up uh, binge eating on the other side because you didn't get enough micronutrients, macronutrients, um, and as well, there's an emotional eating component too that you just have you've just subtracted every second day's worth of food, which previously also played some type of emotional role in your day, whether it be your coffee or whether it be that snack in the mid afternoon, whatever it is. And so, it's yeah, it really is an extreme form of fasting. Plus, of course, as you'll probably talk about, Karen, the the influence on your hormones to just you know, what's seven days in a week and we've just hit three or four days of no food every week. Like that's, that's pretty extreme. Mm -hmm. Marty. Yeah. yeah um, I suppose I was really deep in the fasting thing a while ago with, you know, we're talking about the keto background and we all went on the keto craze and then the fasting craze came along and I did, you know, multi-day fast, but I just see so many people, you know, not eating as a great way to lose weight. It's the best way to lose weight. 
obviously. But what happens when you get a refeed? What are you going to eat when you refeed? And, you know, I definitely went for the, the peanut butter and the butter that I was advised that I could eat as much as I wanted, wanted to because it was, you know, fat was satiating and it generated ketones. And I just realized that, you know, if you get to that point where you're so hungry, you're eating anything and everything, you've lost track of your satiety signals and your true hunger signals to the point that you're just going to overeat when you eat again. And if you're not, you know, reaching for the nutrient dense protein focused um, foods at that point, if you, you know, you've gone too far. If you can't make good food choices and, and it's definitely a rationalization at that point, when you're that hungry, you'll eat anything and everything. You'll go for the pizza and the donuts and go, oh, I, I earned it. But what's happening at that point? You're not getting, as Maddie said, micronutrients. You're definitely not getting the protein that you need. So over time, you're going to be losing your precious lean muscle mass. You may be gaining back more fat when you do that. Um, your metabolism just becomes more and more deranged as you lose that precious muscle mass. So in our data-driven fasting, we sort of went, okay, blood sugar is good guide for whether you need to eat or not eat and just wait till your blood sugars get to a point where hey you do need to refuel you're a little bit below what is normal for you but you're not so low that your appetite is just raging to the point you're gonna overeat and eat really poorly at that point so yeah just just finding a, a balance between eating and not eating that allows you to eat well when you do eat i think it's really critical if you push it too far you're just going to make really poor food choices at that point. Yeah. And I think too, <clears throat> that could be a good protocol for a short period of time. Like if you're looking to, you know, really jumpstart weight loss and you've got a healthy adrenal system and thyroid, and you want to do this for a couple of weeks, like alternate day fasting, probably be okay. And it probably, you know, would help with the weight loss and it will help with the weight loss. Plus the more weight you have to lose, I think the longer you could do that for before you start seeing those repercussions, would you guys not agree? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Totally agree. And the other thing is too, like you run the risk of like, if you think about the psychology of every second day being like, Oh, well, I'm not going to eat tomorrow. So you end up overeating, potentially ending the week on more calories than if you ate every single day mm. um, because, yeah, you're preparing, you're hungry from yesterday and you're preparing for tomorrow. Yeah. And so you're just smashing food on your on days. Um, and so, yeah, do that for a few weeks and it might actually, the scale might go in the other direction. Yeah, mm. yeah totally. And, and the body composition will yeah. worse and you'll be losing muscle mass and uh, the people who have done this intermittent fasting over longest periods of time often don't tend to have the best body composition it's the you know you look at what look at what the bodybuilders do they're making sure they get protein feeding on a regular basis throughout the day so you don't need to have six meals of protein a day but you know a couple is a really good point even one meal a day most people struggle to get enough protein in that one meal because they don't go oh let's have the chicken breast and broccoli and and uh you know that or kale even maddie sorry about the kale but um <laughs> there are some nutrients in the kale um but you're not going to gravitate to those foods you're going to be going for the you know keto foods and those keto foods those magic you know, keto often to a lot of people means high fat low protein and that's just going to 
refill the fat stores that you just emptied. So you're going to look really healthy just before you eat again, but you know, a couple of hours later you'll be undoing all that good work and deprivation. Yeah, yeah. And I think too, we, you know, we had someone, when my client came to me and said that this is what she had heard on this podcast and she was super excited and she was going to do this because the, these people were saying to her, this is the only way that you can really lose weight is to not eat every second day. And I said to her, if, you know, your daughter had come to you 20 years ago, because her daughter's, you know, not that old, but let's say a daughter came to a mother 20 years ago and said, in order to lose weight, mom, I'm going to fast or sorry, I'm going to not eat every second day. And we looked at that person's calorie count throughout the week. We would have said this person has an eating disorder. We would have said that, that she's anorexic and we would have put her into getting help, like with counseling or into a center for anorexia and eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I know this because I was anorexic and I know I've worked with enough people that have these issues, these eating disorders. And just because we're calling it fasting and we have doctors saying that this is okay doesn't mean that it is okay. That still, we're still causing, this is still a detriment to the body. And you have to, you have to think about it like that is that you, is that okay for our biology as women, especially like with our hormones, what is that going to do when you're starving yourself like that? Especially if you don't have a ton, let's say you have, you know, 50 pounds or less to lose. That's going to quickly start causing some damage to the system. If you're really under eating throughout the week, because you will be same with when you're eating one meal a day, it's not enough to feed our hormonal system period. And your body can only release so much fat per day. And if you're really, really obese, then you don't really need to eat. And you know, you, you, you can fast for longer, but as you get leaner and leaner and leaner, you need to think more about your diet and nutrition and really prioritize giving your body what it needs and a a less aggressive approach so you maintain your lean muscle mass, which is what enables you to keep your metabolism high and you you don't just waste away into a skinny fat skeleton with um, a bunch of baggy skin hanging off that can only eat 500 calories a day because that's the, the corny you've backed yourself into by extended fasting. Yeah. Well, the other thing is too, um, is assimilation, right? Is the absorption of those nutrients. And even if you were to do one meal a day um, and technically eat all the calories and macros and micros that you needed, you're only going to absorb a percentage of that. So, uh, you know, I, I yeah. often say to people myself, like, you know, I'm not a huge fan of even one meal a day because of that reason. Um, yeah, is that you're just not going to get it all in. You could technically eat it, but some of it's going to go out the back door. <laughs> Yeah, ex- I, yeah, I didn't even think about that actually, Maddie. That that you wouldn't yeah. absorb it all. So yeah, you'll become nutrient deficient. And most of us don't gravitate to protein, like we said. And even you, yeah. Karen, in your recent little tracking experiment, keep talking <laughs> about the amazing insights you had when you tracked your food and uh, actually found out what you were eating. And you, you know, thinking, "Hey, I'm a health guru. I, I, I must be eating well." And you track your food, and you know, what did what did you learn, Karen? <laughs> This is a fascinating story. <laughs> yeah, it was fascinating because I am. You've gone red. Because, yeah, I did, didn't I? <laughs> 
Well, because I come from a history of eating disorder, right? So I was bulimic. I wish desperately I was anorexic when I was younger. I have a lot of mental stuff around, um, you know, tracking food, tracking what goes into my mouth. It triggers a lot of stuff for me. It trigger immediately sets me back into that old mindset of fearing food and, you know, like watching everything that goes through my mouth and freaking out about it. So I've always been somebody that I, like you just said, assuming I was eating really well, cause I'm a nutritionist and I really understand female weight loss. And so when I started working with my trainer, Pam Sherman, she was, she made me track my food through my fitness pal. And at first I lied. I, and I didn't realize it, but I was lying because I would put in every morning that I would have 40 calories of heavy cream in my coffee. And then, you know, it tracked throughout the day. And as the weeks went on, I finally realized, and I was guesstimating all of these things. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to take this a little bit more seriously and I'm going to actually measure And so on the weekend, when I drink more coffee, I thought, okay, I'm going to actually measure how much cream I'm putting in my coffee. Well, it turns out Karen was drinking 300 calories worth of heavy cream in her coffee every morning. And I was appalled. I was like, oh my goodness, that's really bad. And so I realized that and I realized I was not able to get enough protein in. Like I had a really hard time for how much I had started to work out. I was still eating the same amount of protein that I was eating when I wasn't lifting weights. Mm. And that was like two servings a day and it wasn't enough. So to go, oh my gosh, I'm only eating like 60 grams of protein. Wow. So I had to really start to consciously go, okay, I need to start adding in more protein, which was pretty challenging for me. And I want to talk to you guys about protein actually yeah. in general. It, it's um, fascinating how like, even you with all your knowledge gravitate to the fat and the easy energy. And that's what we do even more at the end of our extended fast. We're not going for the that high protein foods. We're going for the fat and the carbs and ideally both together. So they just, that's, that's the magic dopamine overdrive food that fills our fat and carb store together. So yeah. How much, what did you find when you like, what did you increase your protein to any idea? Yeah, I started. So I was, to start with, I was just doing two or three small ones, servings of protein that would average to be about 60 grams in a day. So then I upped it to three servings and made sure I was actually getting a proper serving of protein per meal because I was just eating these like little amounts, right? So I was always making sure I had protein with every meal because if I don't, my blood sugar does get unstable and I get really hungry. So I always made sure I had this like nice, you know, a little bit of fat, a little bit of good carb and a little protein at every meal. So now I doubled that. So instead of having like one hamburger patty, I now have two in the morning for breakfast or my turkey sausages. I'll have a couple rather than just one. So I started to just increase that way. And then I actually started to supplement with a a beef protein isolate powder that is great. It's super clean, high in collagen It's 21 grams per serving. So I started doing that as well to supplement in the afternoons when it was harder for me to eat protein in the afternoon. It's amazing how hard it is to eat enough protein when you it's actually really track hard. it. Okay. And so it let's is, talk about this. Yeah. Really- I find it, I find it fascinating that 
like tracking calories, it's definitely a mindset that people want to avoid. And it's a deprivation mindset that I have to keep under this calorie limit. But if you don't change what you eat, it is a real hiding to nowhere and just tracking calories for the sake of limiting calories just doesn't work. But what we find is that from all the analysis is that people don't get enough protein. They don't get the protein they need. And if you track it, then you go, okay, I need to prioritize the protein and get enough protein. And then once you've got that in place, you can then more easily dial back the fat and carbs and go, okay, where is my fat coming from? It's 300 calories of heavy whipping cream with my coffee. I need to dial that back. And then you go, where's my carbs coming from? Am I getting too many carbs? Yeah, my blood sugars are okay. So I don't really need to dial back carbs more. But if your blood sugars are on this roller coaster that's causing you to crash, like you said, you get really hungry when your blood sugars drop really low. So you don't want that to happen. So dialing back the carbs a little bit is really helpful. So just finding that moderation balance. And I was raving to you guys before about, you know, everybody has gone from low protein to high protein and just, you know, they go, they see Ted Naiman and go, oh, high protein, high PE is great. And he's not really saying that. He's saying dial up your protein percentage, just incrementally find out where you are now and dial it up a little bit because if you dial it up too much, you're going to get to the point that you're so hungry, you're starving. And you know, why do you say that though, Marty? Because most people say the opposite. Most people say that it's so satiating and you put in all this protein and you won't be as hungry. Yeah. And and it is, but like most people are sitting on 10% protein, 15% protein, and they see Ted Bayman and go, oh, higher the better. I'm going to go 50 and I'm going to 60% protein. So they're living on chicken breast and protein powder. And then eventually, like we mentioned before, your body can't release fat at a really high rate. There's a limit, you know, the fatter you are, the more you're going to release. But if you're getting leaner, especially, there's a limit to how much fat you can release from storage each day. And once you get to that point, your body goes, okay, where am I going to get the energy? I'm either going to downregulate my, um, you know, basal metabolic rate, which is not good, or I'm going to start burning into my own stores of, of muscle and energy stored on my body, which is not fat because I can only release so much body fat. And at that point you get really, really hungry because your body doesn't want to use that muscle for energy. It wants to get, wants to get real energy from fat and carbs. So if you overdo the protein percentage, you your appetite will upregulate to the point that you'll you'll find yourself binging. So it's a matter of going, okay, I've got I'm getting Karen's getting 60 grams of protein a day. Let's dial that up to 70 and um dial back the fat and carbs a little bit. And I can do 70 for three days. I can do 80 for a week. And then let's dial it up a little bit more incrementally to the point that you're losing weight at a sustainable rate, but not, you know, half to 1% a week is really nice. But to try and dial it up even more than that, you're probably going to get to a point where you're rebound binging. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. 
Oh, and also, as a special gift, you received my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Maddie. Well, I was just thinking as Marty was talking there too, a, a lot of people, I think there's a general consensus in the public um, that chicken and white meat is, you know, it's lean. So that's what you've got to go towards. But in this instance that you're, you know, replacing different, I guess, macronutrients, protein, that type of thing. A lot of people don't realize that your white meats, your chicken, um, in fact, spike your insulin. Um, a lot of people are either don't know that or are shocked to find that. So if, if the thing that you go towards because of the, the diet culture kind of says chicken or white meat is the healthiest meat because fat is bad and steaks full of fat. Um, and so you go from your current diet and you jump all the way over to just chicken and protein powder. Well, both of those actually spike your insulin. So you, you're in, you're in a situation where instead of dropping that insulin, which you still will from a conventional diet, um, but you're in the situation where you're also driving up that hunger despite getting all of this uh, protein in. Um, I suppose to add to that, though, that if if your protein is providing greater satiety, this is where I think people get a little bit confused with the insulin. If the insulin and blood sugars spike and then crash, you're in, you're in trouble. But if the protein provides greater satiety such that you eat less across the day, you're like I'm writing an article at the moment, updating an old article that talks about basal versus bolus insulin. And, you know, my wife and my son who are both type one diabetic, only about 20% of their insulin is around the, the, the food they eat each day. The rest is about just holding their body together. So the real critical yeah. thing is if you're bigger, your pancreas is pumping out all this insulin. So the way to really reduce your insulin is really to not be as big, which is about finding a way that, of eating that provides greater satiety and then it enables you to eat less across the day. So that's where protein is um, really helpful to provide greater satiety. But I agree with you that protein powder will be more quickly digested and won't provide as greater satiety as whole foods that'll provide, you know, they'll digest slowly and provide satiety across 12 hours rather than just really quickly. Yeah. And, and we follow the same kind of thing in the sense that, um, yeah, adding protein is kind of a feature of the the way that we go and, and it really helps people feel satiated. We don't obviously do the calorie thing in my world um, as much for a, a handful of reasons, but um, but yeah, protein is a major feature and it just people are like, oh, I just, just didn't want to snack anymore. But it really is shocking, just like you discovered, Karen, like how um, tiny the portion of protein that people were eating before and in yes. many instances, they just, they like, because they're trying to be healthy, they just eat a bowl of veggies or they just have a salad, you know, with almost no protein in it. So it's actually a really quick and easy and effective thing to just add a little bit more. Yeah. And then it's way more satiating. Like if I just eat yeah. a chicken breast with, with broccoli, mm -mm, I'm hungry in 20 minutes. If I eat a great big steak with a little bit of potato and some veg, 
it'll last me, you know, six hours rather than an hour if I was to eat something lean with no carbs and no fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a really good observation that you need to find a balance between, you know, getting the protein and energy from fat and carbs. You, you can't dial it. You can't dial all the fat and carbs all out at once. You may lose weight for a few days, but you know, you look at the protein spring modified fast studies, they lose weight the quickest, but two years later they've regained the weight because they didn't learn how to change they change how they ate on the way down. Yeah, let's talk about that. What's tell us what the protein modified sparing fast diet is. Did I say that right? Protein modified sparing fast. Yeah, <laughs> I got the acronym <laughs> written down on my piece of paper. So um, <laughs> yeah, um, it pro- is, I like that program actually. Yeah, protein sparing modified fast is basically something that um, a guy named George Bistrian came up with in the seventies when he looked at people bedridden patients um, who are obese and wanted them to lose body fat but not lean muscle obviously lying in bed your muscles atrophy and it's really scary so they're just instead of infusing saline they they started infusing you know amino acids and more protein into the diet and got really good results and 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 so that's been reinterpreted in in different forms and fashions through the bodybuilding culture and some really dangerous drinks that were just collagen and people died and it was ugly. Oh. But uh, yeah, 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 you know, every, every good thing was exploited in a bad way. Yes, diet culture wonderfully. But um, yeah, but the studies show that that you know increasing protein percentage will help you lose weight body fat especially the quickest and you'll you'll drop weight but uh, what they also show is that the people that learn to eat better learn to eat whole food rather than relying on shakes do better have greater satiety especially over the long term and if you just you know start eating protein powder only for a couple of months what are you going to eat when you get off that it's just this temporary diet you have to change how you eat on the way down otherwise you're going to regain and yeah we typically find you know people can lose one and a half two percent per week which is great and if you're doing that then all more power to you but um in a macros class we guide people to we actually add back the calories if you're losing weight at more than one percent per week just because we know that in a, in a week or two you won't be continuing on that wonderful journey you'll you'll be going i'm hungry and i'm rebounding and i've fallen off the wagon i'm full of guilt and i can't do this diet and i'm a failure and all that negative mental psychology just burns people out so yeah finding a point that you can you you, you make enough change to lose at least half percent per week greater than one percent per week might be a little bit too aggressive and it's not going to be sustainable in, in the weeks to come but that is mentally really hard for people to wrap their head around. And this is why I think we're seeing so much damage from ketogenic carnivore and fasting diets is that it does work really well in the beginning. And you're like, wow, yeah, look at me. I'm just shedding all this weight. And so for you to turn around and then say to someone, oh, whoa, you're losing too much. You got to slow down and start adding some calories back in. Like most people would be like, no way I'm going to keep doing this. And that's, I think where we're seeing so many problems because it's so hard to say, I'm going to stop my weight loss or slow it down. 
Like that's really, really hard to say. And then it's also hard to get out of if you've been doing it for a long time and you saw results in the beginning, people assume that they just need to do it harder, whatever it was that got them there, right? So, okay, well, fasting for 16 hours got me to lose 20 pounds. I've stalled. So now I'm going to go to one meal a day and fast for 24 hours or whatever it is. And they keep, they start to just think more is better when really with the way our physiology works and our, especially for the female hormonal system, you do have like the best way to lose weight is in stints. And when mm. it comes to the PSMSF, <laughs> P- just say PMS, it's a hormonal podcast. That'll be fun. <laughs> The protein sparing modified fast. There we go. There, there we, we go. go. I have it. I have it spelled wrong on my thing. PSMF. I like it because it can be used in short stints where people can. They, what it is, everybody, is you're really upping the protein, although you are really downing the calories so that you preserve your muscle mass. Because in low calorie diets, you'll typically start tapping into the muscle stores for energy. And we don't want that. So this diet increases protein, but puts you in a pretty big calorie deficit. And then I, some people, I know it's been modified, the ones that I've seen and the ones that I created as well. You do mm-hmm. have you know, a day every couple of days where you're increasing the calories back up to normal and kind of having a you know, big meal at the end of the day of whatever you want for mental purposes, as well as met- metabolic Uh, preservation. Yeah. So it does work well for that. And really it comes down when it comes to weight loss, we really should be doing it in chunks. Like you do this for four weeks or alternate day fasting, maybe for, for four weeks, but then you pull out and you maintain that uh, for, you know, a good month of eating normal calories, whole foods, nailing that down and setting your new weight loss set point. Cause there is a lot to that set point and your yeah. body will fight to come back to that. So losing some weight and then holding it for four weeks is a really good idea. And you're going to get a lot better long-term results. The holding you, at that point is the hard thing, though. A lot of yes. people find it much easier to lose weight than maintain that weight. But, I mean, my perspective is that everything, every diet that works is somewhere between the Western, you know, fat plus carb magic combo with minimal protein because it's expensive to add the processed food versus the protein spraying modified fast. So just, you know, every time you look at a plate of food, go, where is this on the scale of protein percentage? Is it? Does it suit my goals? Do I need a bit more protein and a bit less fat and carbs? But most people don't need to jump to the 50, 60%. We, we sort of guide people to work up towards 40% protein, but that provides a really nice satiety and, and rapid weight loss without being so extreme. You're going to rebound binge. Yeah. And so, Maddie, tell me about what you're doing in your program because it's very different than what Marty's doing with his, like he's very data-driven, <laughs> likes his numbers, which I can appreciate way more now. And I think <laughs> is fantastic, but you don't do any of nah, that. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> 
Well, b- before I answer that question, I was just going to say too, um, in regards to weight loss in stages, often when I'm on the phone or on a Zoom call with people that are interested in my program and we're figuring out what they want to achieve, um, you know, people say, oh, you know, I want to lose 20 kilos or 30 kilos or, you know, 50 pounds, 100 pounds, whatever it is. Um, and whether we're talking, you know, I'm like, okay, so what's a realistic goal in this time frame? And they're like, 20 kilos. <laughs> um, and, and I say, okay, let, let's look, let's draw, I draw a picture of a mountain and I say, how long, say you're at the top of the mountain right now, how long did it take you to walk to the top of the mountain? Um, which is how long did it take to put on that additional 30 kilos? And the, the answer is usually multiple decades, right? It's usually like 18 years, 25 years. And it, it's highly unlikely where it was then to totally overweight. It was probably there was lots of plateaus where your body was actually trying to get back to its original set point, but we kept overeating, right? And so this is the same kind of walking down the other side of the mountain approach. It's like that's the method that you used to gain the weight, which was kind of intermittent and there's lots of plateaus and then you gain some more and then you dropped a little bit. And so we need to follow that same kind of path on the way back down. So I think, nice. yeah, a lot of people think, instead of walking down the other side of the mountain, they're like, how about I just jump off the cliff here? Um, and, and the splat at the bottom is returning to binge eating, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. I totally. love that analogy. Totally. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, in our data-driven fasting program, people chase the lower pre-meal blood sugar and just wait until their blood sugar drops a little bit below what's normal for them and then their target lowers and they get lower and lower. But after... You know, three, four weeks. Initially, they go, this is really easy, but after, you know, hard to do. And it's like, okay, take a break, practice maintenance. When you're in the right headspace again, you'll be ready to go again. But it's that maintaining in the middle is the important bit. Great. But um, to answer your question, so, yeah, the scientist of the group doesn't use data. That's a bit confusing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess for me, I... You know, I worked in a cancer hospital initially and everybody um, there was that a v- very vast majority of people were overweight. And that took me to then talking to everybody about nutrition um, and learning about food. And it turned out everybody knew what food was good for them. Like generally speaking, meat's good. Came from a farm. That, 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 that idea makes sense for most people, not everyone, but most. Um, and I just got to the point where so many people had tried so many diets that I realized from, for me that I realized it was really in there know what to eat the real question is why can't i um and so a lot of that's got to do with diets that um lack the idea of satiety and the correct amount of protein and nutrition to to satiate somebody so they don't binge eat than that and i've obviously had lots of conversations with both of you so you know that i'm all about peeling that onion um but it's that like a lot of it comes down to people use food to comfort themselves to punish themselves um and actually way that's a really privileged position in the world to be in with that we can actually use food to for all of these different tools other than you know what it's actually intended for um and so i find a lot of people that have been on diets or that find my show are like i've been on all the diets and they all worked for the time that i did them um but actually when i ended it was like it was over. I was back to where I started. And that all comes down to how somebody uses food in their life as a tool, um, which comes down to their psychology and how they think about food, their relationship with food. And so the way I think about it generally is that if we can work with that group of people, which 
is pretty big, I would say. Women have been on, I saw a thing the other day, 61 studies by the time they're 50 years old, which is pretty epic. And it's like, if none of them have done the job long term, there's a there's a giant missing piece. Um, and and that's, I think, the, the piece that sits in our mind. Um, and then, like, even with my own group, we had a call last night about just the idea of why when I'm really good, um, do I then go and reward myself with the exact foods that I did really good avoiding? Um, and, and a lot of people do that. It's like they have a good healthy week and on Friday night they're like, I'm proud of myself, let's get a bottle of wine. Yeah. Um, right? And, and so <laughs> and that's cake. a cycle. Yeah, totally. And that's a psychological thing, right? Is because we're going towards that food because it makes us feel a certain way, because it makes us uh, have an experience or feel comforted or feel like we're rewarded. Um, So there's a lot of other things outside of food that we need to integrate into our life so that after the diet, after the data, after my fitness pal is no longer on, on the priority list every day, that we have a new set of behaviors that we know how to navigate because most people have families and kids and they're underslept. Uh, they don't get to the gym enough, like all of the things. And this all contributes to a state of mind that makes poor decisions. Mm. Right. Um, for me too. Right. I'm yeah, a human as well. Yeah. Right. When I'm underslept, I don't even have kids. I don't know how people do it to be honest. <laughs> um, but but the point is that all of this contributes to a decision-making process that we all get to where we often, after we're out of the program, we make the poor choice. Uh, and I think that comes off the basis that diet culture is sold on the idea of willpower. And mm-hmm. willpower always runs out because it's it's only short bursts that you can use it for to get through the next set, to deal with this difficult person. And then after that moment, it's okay. And so I think we're all on the same page um, here, but... That's why I always bang on with the, the, the line, one tweak a week. Instead mm. of jumping all the way out of our comfort zone to the point that everything's foreign and confusing and overwhelming, and then in two weeks being like, oh, so glad that was over. It's like this Great. week, we're just going to look at breakfast. That's it. Don't, I don't care about any of your other meals. Like We're going to nail breakfast. That might take us three weeks. Once we're there and that feels normal, then we're... Good mo- meal at your first meal and you're, you're off to a good start for the day, hey? Yeah. yeah. So... So generally, that's that's kind of where I come at it all from. So, but oh. it, it doesn't mean that I don't think data is useful. Um, I just think a lot of people can do like move a big rock in their diet world without having to do that nitty gritty stuff. Um, yeah. And then there's heaps of utility for it. Um, but then they can go to it once they've got a healthy relationship with themselves and with food, and they're okay on their own. Uh, like they're okay without the systems and the team and the professionals afterwards. Right. I got a question for Maddie. Last time we had a you were on my podcast, we had a really good therapy session about dopamine <laughs> and uh, no D therapy session on the checks in the mail. But uh, one thing I'm intrigued by and fascinated by, and I was even more at the at that time, is you know, our world is in this constant dopamine overdrive situation. We're always getting a dopamine hit from our Instagram and Facebook and outrage culture and everything that you know on social media that's trending is all about outrage that, you know, gets our cortisol and everything going and looking for this dopamine overdrive. And then that comes into our food world. So how does, you know, that constant state of dopamine overdrive that we live in today constantly eat and, and how can we manage that and unwind that and what are some things that you do you had some great tips and techniques and living the ideal zen life that i love no (laughs) kids i think is number one yeah don't have children too late put them back in the bag (laughs) (laughs) 
Pop them back up there. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really good question about dopamine because, yeah, we are like Facebook and Instagram. They've literally got engineers, psychological engineers in Silicon Valley designing this stuff um, in order to make it make us trigger happy essentially with our phones, right? And they do the same exact same thing with the way they flavor Doritos. Um, you know, like every ninth Dorito has five times the amount of flavor, which triggers the gambling psychology, um, which means you keep going back in. So like these companies and food and technology, it is actively geared to manipulate your reptilian brain. So I think that awareness first and foremost is really useful to be like, oh, I'm not just addicted to this. Like they're making me addicted to this. Their goal is to addict me to this process. Um, And then that's a lot of the time we go towards comfort foods because we're seeking comfort, happiness, dopamine, right? That dopamine response. And so um, I talk about this a, a bit in the podcast and with clients too, but dopamine fasting in a way has to be a part of the solution because we use food so much for a dopamine hit. Um, and that's got to start really small. Same thing, one tweak a week. It might be turning, it might be buying an alarm clock at night and and alarm clock technology, believe it or not, is amazing these days. My, my alarm clocks are magical. Um, <laughs> but turning the phone off at night, um, you know, and, and putting it somewhere else and start with five minutes before bed and start like at 6 p.m. Um, and then work up over time. Um, and it's the same with, you know, you can get app blockers. I use a lot of app blockers now as well that are, are preset and, and organized. And I haven't seen my Facebook newsfeed for years. Um, I've got newsfeed eradicator. Chrome plugin. Um, and it's so good because, you know, I'm a human. I get stuck in the, the grind and the scroll as well. Um, being deplatformed through Instagram was helpful as well. Um, so <laughs> I don't get stuck there either. But the point is to create space between you and stimulants. And that that's not just social media. That's, uh, you know, like all sorts of activities that you go towards for pleasure or comfort. Is this because we're getting so dulled? Mm. to it like i do a lot of testing dutch testing and one of the markers is dopamine and i would say eight out of ten people their dopamine's low low end or under range and i'm like is this a product of our society and our environment right now that we're so like tanked on the dopamine yeah absolutely because if you think about it dopamine back in the day you know for the first few thousand years it like there was three core there's probably more but there's three core things that humans were driven to do that produce dopamine hunt um, right to get food and feed everybody, which is a huge energetic and emotional risk. That t- so there's a lot of space between me and the dopamine hit. Right, um, sex. So you know you've got to go through the courting phase and all the different things to be able to. So there's, again, a lot of space between you and the dopamine outcome. And then the other thing is to fight and defend and kill. Right, and have that victory. Whereas now we have we don't have to put in any effort to produce a dopamine outcome. Amazon is almost to the point that they'll literally feed you. Like the next stage for Amazon Prime is that they'll put pizza in your mouth. Um, yeah. So we literally we literally don't have to put any effort into producing a dopamine response, which is how this social media stuff is so addictive. And same with sugar and soda. There's no risk to get a reward. It's just all reward. And so, yeah, we blunt our response and we get so, we build up a tolerance to that dopamine response uh, that we we don't register that the, those experiences are happening. So we go deeper in the chocolate, we go, you know, or we just get another one because we, we're, we're tolerant of that experience. So it really is like dulling down. Like yeah. we, it's, isn't that interesting? Because it's like it's a drug. It's a drug. 
You can exhaust your dopamine stores. There's a pool of dopamine, and every time you do something, it raises the dopamine and then crashes it. But you can actually deplete that dopamine pool. Tyrosine and amino acid helps fill it back up, and especially if you're not getting enough protein, your dopamine pool. But if you're always on that, you're desensitized to the um, dopamine if you're always on that dopamine roller coaster, always peeking it out and get burnt out to the point that you don't want to do anything. So, yeah, the dopamine farm, the things that you're addicted to, enables you to focus more and do the things you actually want to. You don't get distracted when things get hard and go on, let's scroll Instagram. You can actually focus more on the things that you choose to focus. We could just break the rules and get removed. (laughs) (laughs) Or that, yeah. (laughs) Or that. Don't do this at home, kids. Not advised. <laughs> Sometimes envious of you, Maddie, that you were kicked off Instagram because it just like eliminates that struggle. Was in panic altogether. mode, and then I was liberated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's awesome. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and you know, going back to, I was thinking about something when you were talking about just like the emotional eating thing and this dopamine, and one of the best things that I've learned and I've helped, you know, that I've told my clients about my members is that we have to remember humans are very addicted to that dopamine. We get very addicted Mm. to pleasure. We are creatures of pleasure, period. And the story. And the minute you think you're suffering or you are suffering, you will seek out pleasure. And so many people go into weight loss with a suffering mentality. I can't tell you how many times somebody would come to me and say, well, I'm eating really healthy and I've been following it and I'm doing so great, but I haven't lost a single pound. So I'm thinking, why should I be eating like this? So I just went back and ate to my old ways. And I'm like, that's you're associating eating healthy with something negative and painful. And -hmm. you can't do that. You have to get excited about it. You have to go, I want to eat healthy. Even if I don't lose weight, I want to eat healthy. And you have to change that mindset because if you don't, it is a matter of time before that willpower runs out and you're going to go for that dopamine hit. And when you reverse it and say, I'm trying to nourish my body because I want optimal Mm. performance, I'm getting the the protein, I'm getting vitamins, I'm getting minerals because I want to perform to the best, you sort of change that around rather than deprivation and going, I can't have those donuts that I want that are those magical carb and fat combo foods that overdrive the dopamine. You're going for, you know, what what foods can I give my body that it's craving and satisfying? craving the the junk food that always derails me so yeah it's always about nourishing your body first and then the cravings settle down it's not about deprivation and calorie counting it's about let's let's make sure we you know period of time to make sure you're getting the protein to make sure you're getting the the vitamins and minerals and omega-3 that your body actually needs because otherwise it's going to crave it and eat through all the trash that you've got in your cupboard until it gets enough of those to survive Yeah. And you do a lot around minerals. Hey, Marty, like how much do you see that really affecting people's eating behavior? Like when they actually get the right nutrient stores and they're eating nutrient dense foods, what are you seeing in your data? (laughs) (laughs) It's showing that it's really like that is working, that it really does help with cravings and mood and mental stuff. Right. 
Yeah, Maddie, if you can just turn off the audio for a bit, I'm going to talk about data and you'll be offended. But um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, we've got 125,000 days of data from 35,000 people that have done uh, use Nutrient Optimizer. And, yeah, the, the protein is definitely the most satiating nutrient, all the amino acids, as we get more of those within our calorie budget, we eat less. But also sodium, potassium, calcium. Um, potassium's massive. Just people aren't getting enough potassium in the diet because we're not eating those green non-starchy veggies like kale and spinach. Sorry, kale again, Maddie. But um, but yeah, it, it, we're not eating that. It doesn't have to eat kale, but just anything that contains potassium is massively satiating. And mm, um, like we're we, moving from low protein to high protein will drop your calorie intake by that 55%. Um, potassium's 49%, I think. So people eat more potassium. But it's not just one nutrient that you can go, let's get a pill bottle and like Dave Asprey jam 150 pills down your throat <laughs> each morning and believe in that, that you just blew thousand dollars a week on supplements it's about the the whole matrix of food of, of protein with the minerals and vitamins and the forms that your body understands and the ratios that are that work for your body that aren't going to throw those ratios out and your body goes i understand this food i don't need to go searching for that crap food so when you prioritize nourishing your body um, you, you do have dopamine cravings for all those nutrients as well and you get rewarded by your body when you get those nutrients from your food and then you're satisfied and you don't go searching for the trash foods. So, yeah, it's not about deprivation. It's about nourishing your body. And once you reframe it to say, how can I pack as many of those essential nutrients into my calorie budget each day? Um, yeah, because I love my body and I want it, want it to thrive and perform. Mm -hmm. um, everything else settles down and people go, oh, I've, lo I've lost interest in food. I'm not hungry anymore. And it's, it's this massive wow. shift from being, I'm so addicted to food to being, you know, I've, you know, I'm really satisfied. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you think that like, I was hearing a woman talk the other day about her thing is, is to eat. She wants people to eat fit women to eat 50 grams of protein at every meal. And I was like, I can do that. Like, I really feel there's a protein threshold and, and it's there for a reason. I don't know what it is. Do you know? <laughs> do you um, think we yeah, have a protein yeah, I, threshold where it's like, okay, I can't eat anymore. I'm going to puke. It's as gross. We yeah, don't have one for carbs, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a limit to how much protein your body can use. And once you get to that point, it goes, well, I can't do anything with this protein because I've created neurotransmitters and I've rebuilt my muscles and uh, I've, you know, created insulin and all the things your body does with protein. And at that point, all it can do is try to use gluconeogenesis to convert it to yeah. ATP to be used for energy. And at that point, it's like, ah, uh, that, that's really hard for me to do. It takes a lot of effort to take protein to make energy. So why don't you give me some fat and carbs? Because that's a whole lot easier. So that's how the cravings work. And that's why you get to a point where you've had enough protein. And then at that point, you go searching for the donuts because you've been really good and just eaten chicken yeah. breast and, and protein powder. So that's why we sort of say, yeah, you get the meat sweats. And for meat the bodybuilders to eat enough protein to it upregulates your metabolism because it, it's such a 
um, thermogenic process, food. <laughs> thermogenic process that you're losing 25 to 30%, 35% of the energy in that protein. You actually lose it as heat as you're turning it into muscle and digesting it. So, yeah, it, it's it's a very inefficient source of energy. So your body says, I've had enough. Let's get some easy energy from fat and carbs. That's why there's sort of a limit to how much you can eat. And 150 grams is probably, you know, definitely upper end. And maybe if you're working out like a maniac and doing a lot of resistance training, you will crave more protein. But um, most people, we just say track what you're currently eating. It's probably pretty close. Maybe dial it up a little bit, but the focus needs to be dialing back the energy, the easy energy from fat and carbs while prioritizing protein. Um, it's sort of that balanced mindset that enables people to make consistent progress forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do both of, what do you guys both find is the best? Like, I think everybody takes something different, like macros and, you know, you're helping people to discover that Marty. And I think I do that too. Like I really help women to find their perfect diet and it's not you know, always just keto or, you know, vegan, paleo, whatever, these labels, they all work for somebody. That's what I think. Is there though, in your guys's work and your programs and what you're seeing, do you happen to see like a way of eating that definitely seems to work for the masses? Yeah, first many I've raved on. <laughs> I love it when you rave on. <laughs> a, a baseline threshold of what should work in theory for most people being low carb and strictly not no carb. Um, so I work pretty much exclusively with women. Um, the odd the odd fella comes through the system. Uh, most of them seem too stubborn to come and talk about their feelings to me. Um, but um, but yeah, so I usually we usually go to a low carb um, and making sure that we do factor in like a, I kind of split it up to above ground vegetables avoid that um, that sugar spike um, and then anything any root vegetables that don't trigger sugar cravings are prioritized of an evening type thing so that's kind of the general thing but then as we go through the program it's based on conversations and progress and, and movement then we move the, the needle from there and it's like yeah we might need to dial this up dial that there but protein's a feature of all of it everybody needs to get their protein up basically there's not too many people that come through the door that are like yeah I'm eating a steak at every um, so yeah, it's generally start with low carb. And when you and say low carb, like, can you give us a number of like what you like to see it in as far as total carb count? Don't track anything. <laughs> the issue with the people that I work I, with is yeah, that they, they've mm-hmm. calorie counted. They're obsessed. They got super obsessive and they're like, they're so sick of data. They're like, I've looked at numbers and, and they might've been not doing it correctly. Totally possible, but it's more about their relationship with their food. And if they hate the process or go in, like you're talking before Marty about with this deprivation or sorry, you can this deprivation mindset to like, Oh, another diet. Oh my God, I'm going to hate myself. I'm going to eat all this, you know, healthy food. And then I can't wait for week 13 when I get to eat pizza again. Like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to fix that, that um, so that they can just be okay with living healthy on their own. Um, so it's more about, we share photos of plates type thing. Um, so, cause a lot of people are, you know, in my experience, a lot of people are going from overwhelmed, confused, and sort of 
got so much knowledge because they've listened to 300 podcasts between the three of us um, as well as yep. everybody else. Yes. They're like, there's so much information in my head. I just need someone to tell me what to eat, right? Mm-hmm. So we just get, I just guide people. There's got to be this much of the, pro- the plate should be approximately protein, this much approximately fat, this much appro- approximately carbs. We start there. And that usually sorts out the first 10 to 20 kilograms. <laughs> right. Yeah, I yeah, bet. That's a great start. Yeah, I, I love the above ground root vegetables for earlier in the day. That seems to work well. Prioritize protein and, and nutrients, we say, earlier in the day when you first feel hungry. Most people have got elevated blood sugars. So uh, they don't need more glucose. They don't need more carbohydrate earlier in the day. But a lot of people, especially in a lower carb style diet, the blood sugars start to drop later in the day and they get yeah. really hungry. So if you're going to have carbs in the day, your last meal tends to be a good place to just bump your glucose back up. So you're going to sleep, not starving, not with high ketones. You're going to sleep better. You're going to wake feeling better the next day and protein across the day. But yeah, 150. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. 50 grand for women is probably on the upper end, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, if you start on 15%, just work your way up to 20% the next week by dialing back fat and carbs and allowing yourself to eat as much protein as you can and then 25%. And then if you get to 40%, then great. No need to push it greater than that because, as I said, that's hard to sustain at that point. Yeah, you want to you end up rebound, rebound binging because you, you need some energy. Yeah. Yeah. What See, about you, Karen? What do you find from a dietary expect, uh, perspective works with yeah, your hormonal clients? Mm-hmm. And that's what, like, I have an issue also with data stuff a little bit because... We're just beating up on Marty. Is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Screw data! <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you can't I, handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. No, I really see a good... I I know that data is very important and I have come a long ways with it. However, where I, my, where my journey started was with data and I was calorie counting and I didn't have food addiction. I wasn't like, 
oh, I got to eat the cookies. And I, I never had that. So it was easy for me to eat healthy, lower my calories, exercise like crazy. And I was hardly eating and I was only getting fatter. And so I, that's a lot of what the women that come to me, that's where they're coming. That's the world they're coming from, which is I've tracked, I've dropped my calories down to a thousand calories, 1200 calories, 800 calories. I'm fasting. I'm, I've done low carb. I've done moderate carb and I can't lose a pound. So it, that whole theory of being in the caloric deficit and watching the macros and the percentages it doesn't work for them because they have hormonal dysfunction happening. And so it doesn't matter how much they eat. It, it just, it doesn't make any difference. And that's such a mm -hmm. frustrating place to be at where you feel like, how is this possible that I can be in a caloric deficit and my body will not access my fat stores. Mm -hmm. So when I work with women, I, and I've been doing this now for, this is my ninth year of this company. I've run the gamut. I've done it all. You know, I've done the paleo down. To, I've worked with vegans. I've done fasting. I've done keto. I've done carnivore and working with thousands of women and just kind of collecting the data. <laughs> what I've come up with is a, we have to, like I talked about before, you have to do weight loss and stints, but you also have to prepare the body for weight loss, especially the women that come to me. And that's going to look different for everybody. You may need to let go of some toxins, like whether you've got heavy metals or you're just living in a very toxic world and you got to clean up your environment. You got to quit drinking, clean up the liver, um, upregulate the detox pathways. We got to maybe do some hormone replacement therapy because without hormones, your body will have a hard time letting go of that fat. So if you're an older woman, not older, perimenopausal or menopausal, you know, 40 years and up young, uh, <laughs> then you, you, you may need to replace the hormones in order for the body to let go of the fat. Or if you're a younger, fertile woman, you just need to balance out these hormones so that the body has the tools to go, oh, okay, I'll let go of the weight now. So it's really about finding what could be causing it besides the calorie deficit um, or increase whatever, like you really need to get down to that. And then you do it in stints where you do, you know, a month of weight loss, or you do it throughout the week where I, you know, increase calories one day and then I drop them really low the next day. So they do an intermittent fasting day, maybe three days a week where they're maybe going till 12 or till two, because our bodies will adjust to anything we do. So something that works in the beginning will stop working. We all know this, right? And this is why people go from one diet to the next because it stops working. So even if they did it right and they, they were successful with it, it still stops working and your body will adjust. So if you go down to 1200 calories and you lose weight from it, well, guess what? Your metabolic rate is going to go and it's going to come down to meet that intake of food. And now you're no longer losing weight and you have to drop the calories even farther now to get any more results. And so doing it in a cyclical manner to preserve the metabolism and preserve the hormones, give the body what it needs for the hormones, the detoxification, liver support, that I see work by far the very best for my ladies. Well, and you touched on something there too, like um, that, and we kind of mentioned it before too, but that idea of like reverse dieting, right? To, yeah. to recover the metabolism and doing that weight loss in stints um, of like, yeah, dropping the 
your intake or whether that whether that looks like increasing your intermittent fasting window or whatever it looks like but then um you know the next month to be like oh we're going to open it up and we're going to actually add back in a snack or a meal um and it it really is kind of confront people go into fear of like oh, you know i'm going to go back to that body that i don't want and i'm eating more food and but yeah it kind of is this like you know up and down flow as we progressively move towards the goal yeah yeah marty were you going to say something there like in Australia, it's harder to get the testing and the and the hormones and the like. Mm-hmm. One of the top three things that you recommend to optimize hormones without those sort of interventions, if they can't get access to the testing or the bioidentical hormones or DHEA, and Amazon doesn't ship you every drug you uh, you want in Australia, or some to optimize the hormones if they can't get access to the testing or the bioidentical hormones or DHEA and Amazon doesn't ship you every drug you uh, you want in Australia or some. Do you guys have no, them. do you have no access at all to bioidentical hormones? Like what about progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone? Uh, through, through prescribers, but um, yeah, well, to optimize those things naturally without if if uh, your doctor isn't going to give you testosterone or DHEA. They won't? Uh, it's very hard to get in Australia. Mm. Then there's a lot of things that you can do that are plant-based for hormones. That That's what I would recommend. Really hard with the progesterone, but there are things that can help. Like if, if you're perimenopausal or you're going into menopause. You- uh, it's very hard to get in Australia. Mm-hmm. then there's a lot of things that you can do that are plant-based for hormones that that's what i would recommend really hard with the progesterone but there are things that can help like if, if you're perimenopausal or you're going into menopause you don't have access to the hormones then i would recommend starting with phytoestrogen so using things like flax is the number one most phytoestrogenic food so putting in like a tablespoon of ground flax every day um taking a menopause supplement that has like the black cohosh the sage in it the vitex um can be really really helpful i just had a woman earlier today who's you know she's in her 60s she's still having hot flashes she's never done hrt and she's getting you know, she just started in on a menopause supplement. She says it's helped immensely to get rid of her hot flashes. So that and adrenal care, if you, because your adrenals can take over a little bit of the production of those hormones, especially testosterone, but it will make these other, like once your ovaries shut down, the adrenal system will make little amounts of progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, DHEA. And so if you are a highly stressed out person, which everybody is right now, then your body will always prefer to make that cortisol because it's a survival hormone. So it's going to take, if you're always wanting to, if you're always raising cortisol up and your blood sugar is unstable and you're running around and you got kids in a business like me and you're highly stressed out (laughs) and you work too much, then your adrenal system is going to be suffering, which means it won't be producing those hormones and women will go through menopause a lot harder when they're like that. So just nourishing yourself, taking care of your body, taking care of these stress levels in your life can really go a long, long way. So doing plant medicine and 
the stress, I think are the two top things that you can do. And lifting weights, I think is huge. Um, controlling blood sugar is huge. I mean, just that alone can do so much for, for hot flashes and night sweats and the weight gain and things like that. So, yeah. When you said plant medicine, I instantly went to ayahuasca. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, all you got to do is hop on some mushrooms, some ayahuasca, acid, ketamine. <laughs> You pick, you pick one of those and you'll probably be fine. <laughs> and use my referral code. Just yeah. <laughs> <sighs> uh, Karen, when you mentioned flax there, is that a reference to seed cycling? Do you do seed cycling? Seed cycling can work pretty well for fertile women. So if you're still cycling, it does have an impact. And I have had a lot of good success with it, with fertile women that are in their younger years. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, flax in the first half with, oh, I can't remember which one, sesame in the first half of the cycle, and then pumpkin and sunflower, I think, in the second half of the cycle, which helped to produce progesterone. So it it can work actually pretty good for that. Um, mm-hmm. in, in just minerals in general, right? Like you need vitamin C, zinc to make progesterone, you, you know, to nourish the adrenal system, all those, you know, high density foods that Marty talks about is great. Mm-hmm. It's great for the hormonal system. Maddie, what do you do to help people manage their cortisol, their stress levels? What are the first things that there's a lot of things you can jump into to manage stress? What do you think is the best things that work for most people? Good question. And that's hard because a lot of people are stressed by different things. They get their source of stress from different things. The first thing is um, it's kind of typical rabbit hole me answer, but is to understand why you're addicted to the stress. Um, because a lot of us, just like we're addicted to dopamine, is we we remove the the dopamine source or the cortisol source, and we're kind of like, what now? Like, what's the point of my existence? What's the point of life? Where's right the now? adrenaline rush? <laughs> yeah, exactly. People are running on this, so understanding its purpose first is really useful because you've got to find something that that kind of satiates that emotional requirement. But I think breath work is a really useful tool. It's really rapid. I get people to do that, whether they're stressed, before they eat, uh, you know, in any type of situation, before sleep, um, just to bring that cortisol down, hopefully move into the parasympathetic and just improve digestion. Uh, and you can do like the four, seven, eight oh, is what I usually encourage favorite, people to do. Maddie, it's my favorite, Maddie. It's great, I love right? it. Yeah. Love so it. even if you do it for two minutes or 10 minutes, like, yeah, it's, it's going to produce a benefit. So what, what does it look like in practice? What's four, seven, eight? You've never heard of that? Well, uh, oh, geez, actually, where have you been? Uh, Stuck in your uh, data? <laughs> no, I, I actually use a breathing. I've found it really helpful to, to go into the breathwork thing, but just the tracking my HRV while I'm doing just breathing in and out and relaxing for five minutes a few times a day has just helped me calm the adrenaline and cortisol and dopamine, and then you can go back and focus on what you want to focus on. But um, uh, I'm intrigued in the 478. It's very yeah, so old. It's, it's thousands of years old. Yeah, it's super simple. So you just breathe in over a period of four seconds. So you just breathe in and then you hold it like a really um, a diaphragm belly breath. You hold it in there for seven and then you just slowly release it for eight and then repeat. And you inhale through your nose. So four, to a count of four, you hold it for a count of seven and then breathe out through the mouth for a count of eight. And you're yep. not, you're only supposed to do it, I think a couple minutes when you first start mm. and then you work your way up to doing it a little bit longer. If you mm. Google um, Andrew Wheel, 
478. He has a really nice video about it that I send all my clients. And it's one of the practices that I've been able to stick with for years. And it instantaneously lowers your stress. Like I'll be traveling or having anxiety about something and I'll just, I'll do a couple of rounds and it's like instantaneous down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely found that the the breathing exercises on a regular basis actually increased my heart rate variability and just overall stress levels, cortisol levels. And it's been really, really helpful. And then I can be more productive on the things I want to be productive rather than all the fear, stress things that what if I'm not keeping up with this social media or that social media? I wonder what's happening on Twitter. And I wonder what people think of me over here and why aren't people, (laughs) you know, it's all that mind game just settles down and go, this is what I need to do and I'm going to do it. Well, and the other thing I would say after like breath work, breath work is really good in the moment and it's a really good practical thing. But a lot of the things that we're stressed about are things we can't change. So we have to change the story about them, like whether it be our annoying boss, um, a relationship that's going through a difficult phase, you know, kids, whatever it is. So it's like you obviously can't walk away from those. So one thing that I, I like the idea of is removing it from the physical body by journaling. So it's like, it's this thought, this feeling that's in our body and it's raising our hormones, our cortisol and our adrenaline to have this response. So physically getting it out of the body by writing it down, even if it's bullet journaling, just writing partners annoying, kids are driving me crazy, you know, like just really time-saving type stuff. You can obviously write it all out in paragraphs if you've got time, but yeah, moving that frustration out of your body into a book or a paper or something like that is is really good to just download that out of your physical being. Yeah. Or changing your perception of it. I find that to be one of the most powerful things too. Like when you're talking about these things that you can't change, like you're not, you can't escape the family. You can't, you know, Yeah. is, is there a way that you could change the perception of something negative into something positive? Right. Because we tend to just go down that negative pathway so fast, like, Oh, my job sucks. Cause my boss is such a <laughs> Think and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, or you're just complaining or whining about all the millions of things in your life. Why not just say, is there, is there something positive that I could change this into? Like, Hey, yeah. you know what? I'm really happy. I got a job. Like I'm lucky I got this job and yeah, my boss isn't the greatest, but that's his crap. And I'm not going to let it bug me, you know, or whatever yeah. it might be is just you can always change your perception. You can change how you feel about something. And a lot of people don't realize that they have the power to do that. Yeah. Gratitude is such an important practice. And I think that's one common thread through looking into any successful people or really healthy people that are, you know, seem to be getting it mostly right. Um, you know, is that, yeah, gratitude is an important part of their practice. And yeah, we don't all feel grateful every single day. You know, some days I'm like, especially in the middle of lockdowns, everyone was like, just be grateful. I was like, I don't give a shit about anything, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, but practicing gratitude most days, like, like, and when, when we're talking about diets, like a lot of people are like, you know, Oh, I've got to go to the gym and I suck at everything. Switch that into like a celebration that you can move your body. You know, your body has capacity to make change, you know? So just uh, that shift of perspective and story, like you mentioned. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Well, we are, 
coming up to almost an hour and a half here, gentlemen. So I think <laughs> it's going to be, we're going to have to save part two for another time. And we will record just a Q&A between all three of us for part two. Um, because really, you and I, all three of us, we could just keep going here. Like, I want to ask yeah. you guys so many more questions, but um, we'll let this be a long enough podcast at an hour and a half. <laughs> so any Sounds final good. words on this segment? It's been a ton of fun. Great to chat to you guys. I think we're all on the same wavelength and contribute nicely. It's been really good. I think so too. And retreat coming to a country near you soon. <laughs> Probably in that country may just be Mexico. So, <laughs> uh, Ayahuasca shaman option. <laughs> That's the VIP package. And you'll be able to use our coupon code for the Ayahuasca. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks so much. And I look forward to part two Q&A with my two Australian powerhouses. I look forward to it, guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Marty. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.